So How many words a minute can you type now? <clears throat> oh, I have, no, I have no idea. Probably. I've not. never. I don't know that I've seen you type. I'm not sure what assessment <laughs> I would give it either. Probably not as many as I could before. Yeah. <clears throat> Welcome to Retiring Today, the podcast that guides you to and through retirement. Today, we're going to tell you why the Dow Jones is not your retirement. The Dow Jones, of course, is a benchmark. It's a way to measure what a group of companies, how they performed in one day. But your retirement, that could be 20 or 30 years. So the two, though they often do get compared, shouldn't. And we think there's a better way to measure retirement performance. But first... Who's all in the room? Well, I'm Molly Nelson. I'm here with Rochelle Smith. She's the producer of this podcast. And across from me, Lauren Merkel. He's a certified financial planner and a certified financial fiduciary. I just want to talk about benchmarks for a minute, guys, because I was thinking about a time in my life when I measured performance. And I'm going to take you way back. You guys ready? We're ready. Okay, we're going back. It's probably 1994. Let's just pretend somewhere in that ballpark. And do you guys recall the Hershey's track meets? No, not at all. Is that local? Yeah. Obviously, it had to be national. Hershey's, Pennsylvania. Yep. So you qualified first, like at the city level. Okay. Then you'd qualify at the state level. And then yep. if you did well at the state level, perhaps there was a regional. But the goal was to get to Hershey, Pennsylvania to perform, to compete, rather. Okay, yours truly participated in the standing long jump. Now, you might not be familiar with that event because it's not in the (laughs) Olympic circuit. (laughs) It's also not in the high school track circuit in Iowa. But for some reason, for Hershey's, that's one of the events. They also have the softball throw. So the events are similar to a track meet, but a little bit different. So I participated in the standing long jump, and my goal was to get to Hershey, Pennsylvania. Okay? Never left the state of Iowa. I thought this was my big chance to leave, leave the state. So I'd practice in the backyard every day, and I had index cards where I would track all of my jumps. Here's the sad part, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we are hanging on every word. I, I can barely breathe over here. I didn't make it to Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> but I was thinking about a time when I was trying to meet certain benchmarks, and I remember trying to get to certain distances and tracking them. And I think somewhere in my parents' house, God bless them, those index cards still set, sit in a box today. <laughs> so those index cards you used then as your benchmark. Did you, uh, did you research nationally on what distance you thought it was going to take to get you to Hershey? Well, let's go back to 1994 and try to wonder how I would have researched nationally <laughs> oh, come back on. in The 19... computer's <laughs> been around forever. <laughs> the yeah. internet. We didn't have a computer in our house. Are you crazy? Old school. I didn't have a computer in my house, but I do remember access to one at school. <laughs> no, I don't recall. And maybe I did. Maybe no. I had learned what the qualifying qualifying jump was yeah. or something. Because I got to imagine you had something you were trying to aspire to. That's the whole point of, of setting goals. Right. Now, 1994. So I graduated high school in 1994. And in high school is where I learned to type. But we were not using computers. <laughs> we were using typewriters. <laughs> So are you so, going to tell us about a time you set a benchmark of like words per minute or what's, what, is this your benchmark oh, I, story? I, no, it's not a benchmark story. I was actually, uh, t- uh, this was a reference to where technology was in 1994, right? We didn't learn on computers. We learned, I learned to type on a typewriter and I did have a lot of benchmarks. Okay. But, tell uh, us about a benchmark. Uh, what's your benchmark story? Uh, our, our head football coach was our typewriter class. <laughs> 
teacher. Uh, all right. Good segue. Uh, so I, once I learned to type, this is the first introduction I had to typing. And once I learned how to type, well, he, he always had the benchmarks up on the wall. And they were it was a huge piece of paper with everybody's words per minute. And then not only our class, but other classes. So I saw, and what for some reason, what stands out in my mind is probably way off 60 words a minute. Like, that was the one to beat. So I had to get to that. And I progressed, sure. I progressed really quickly. And then once I learned how to type, then he didn't have me in class typing anymore. He had me at the front of the class behind this little, it was basically a little cubby hole. And then we started watching football tape. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would type my little assignment and I'd have to take it up to him. He'd look at it, make a correction here. Then he'd point me over to the cubby hole. And then I was studying football film Good. the rest of the class. I, lo- I love that story. Yeah. Rochelle, do you call, recall a time you set a benchmark in your life? Well, let's be real. In 1994, I was only four years okay. old. Guys. You know, that wasn't the question. I don't recall that being the question. <laughs> I feel like I do every time. Like, I design a website or anything. I have to plan it out, trying to hit certain marks. So I would say I do it on a regular basis. Well, we know that retirees set benchmarks. They set either, you know, a time, a date they want to retire, a certain lifestyle that they want to live. And some people even have maybe a number in their mind. If they can get to this amount of money, then they can live their retirement vision. But one thing they do is watch certain performances or certain benchmark performance. And Lauren, you know, as well as I do people, you know, they used to say water cooler conversation. That's an old, uh, old, obviously cliche, but they'll come in and say, did you see what the Dow Jones did today? Did you see what the NASDAQ did today? And what's going on with those benchmark performances can actually really make people feel good or feel bad. I was still thinking back in time. Oh, well, you watching football tape in your mind. Are you going over some glory days? No, I just think about benchmarks. What about benchmarks? Yeah, do tell. Let us in, maybe. Well, I was thinking about how benchmarks are basically ingrained with us. So we just told a story about over 20 years ago about how we remember benchmarking our lives. So even at that point in our lives, benchmarking wasn't new. We have Benchmarking has been ingrained in us really from the very beginning. I think that has a lot to do with goals, uh, trying to achieve goals, measuring your progress, success. And when it comes to investing, it's it's really the same phenomenon. Like we have been, these benchmarks have been in, uh, instilled with us from the very beginning of us starting to uh, invest. And, and that's why the Dow, benchmarks like the Dow and the S&P 500 is what we grew up with from an investment standpoint. And it's why it's what we stick with it, even as we uh, go, go through the different progressions of life and we end up on the doorsteps of retirement, still measuring our portfolio and whether or not we're achieving success based on the old benchmarks that we have been using all, all of these times or, or throughout the this entire time. And these benchmarks, we have emotions tied to them. I mean, I remember seeing the number I needed to get to, to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and not achieving the number. And it was devastating after putting all that hard work in. And I can't imagine if I'm five years from retirement or maybe in retirement and I look at the Dow Jones and I'm devastated by the number I see on my television screen or in my news headline. Yeah, that, I think that's kind of the genius and the evil behind benchmarks is if you, I mean, trying to accomplish some of these things takes a lot of work. So let's talk about investing and saving for retirement. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline, a lot of sacrifice. And if you weren't emotionally vested with achieving that goal, then the chances of you being successful at obtaining that goal are not very likely. I mean, you think about really the goal people are trying to achieve is they have to 
uh, provide for themselves and their family throughout the course of their life, but they also have to start squirreling away money and collecting resources for a time where they're not going to have any earned income coming in for the rest of their life. So they sell to raise kids. They sell to put the kids through college. They have to buy a house, uh, buy vehicles, multiple vehicles. There's all these things that cost money that uh, is hard enough to do, but at the same time, you're supposed to be able to provide for yourself for a time frame when you don't have earn, earned income coming down the road. So it's an extremely challenging task. And if you weren't emotionally tied to it, then it would be really difficult to do. Uh, these benchmarks help us gauge our progress along the way. And it can work really well. Um, but I think a, a more effective strategy, because you still need to benchmark, you still need to gauge. Now the question is, is, is what kind of benchmarking should you use? Is the big piece of paper on the wall saying this is the best in the school is that the most appropriate benchmark to get you to be your best well for me it was well you got to football quicker you got to watch the football take quicker plus going to going to going to watch football and studying film as opposed to continuing typing on this on this typewriter for me it was very appropriate because that's what that's what I could relate to that's what motivated me uh, there's probably many other people in that class that it wasn't appropriate for because that did not motivate them so the benchmarks that you use throughout the course of your life should probably be custom to you, what drives you, and the goals you're trying to accomplish. And that shouldn't change as you transition to the retirement year. So as we, we think about how do you measure your success, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones, probably is not the best way to measure that. Yeah, and what we'll hopefully unveil as we get through this podcast is some better ways to measure your retirement before performance. But before we kind of tackle why the Dow Jones is not your retirement, I think it's good to kind of understand exactly how some of these benchmarks are put together. So first, learn just some basics on what the S&P 500 is, the NASDAQ, and what the Dow Jones is as well. Yeah, let's start with the Dow Jones. It's probably one of the most familiar with a lot of people. It, and a lot of people will be surprised by this. Is there's only 30 stocks 30 of the largest companies in the United States is in the United States is what represents the Dow Jones. And it was very, the origin of the Dow Jones is and because it's called the Dow Jones industrial average. It was just industrial sector stocks. So it's even more specific than just the top or largest 30 companies in the United States. Now, over the years, that has changed. It's still called the DJIA, Dow Jones Industrial Average, but there's a lot more companies outside the industrial sector than than there there was in the origin of the Dow Jones. And the S&P 500 has actually made it made up of 505 different companies? Well, cur currently there's 505 companies in the S&P 500. The S&P 500, after its name, represents the 500 largest companies in the United States. But currently there are 505, and those names change from time to time, just like the names change in the Dow. Uh, and, and as you might imagine... The 30 that are in the Dow, most of those also make up the S&P 500. So there is significant overlap between what you see in the S&P 500 and what you see in the Dow Jones. And then the NASDAQ, that's a little more tech heavy. 
Yeah, there's a significant exposure in the NASDAQ uh, to the tech industry. And that's not good or bad. It's just this is something that you should understand as you're trying to benchmark the performance of your portfolios, how these different benchmarks work. And the more you understand about how they're constructed, how they work, how they originated and what they have evolved to, the more you're going to be able to see, does it play a role in the accurate measurement of your success or is there a better way to do that? So what people sometimes do is obviously compare their retirement performance to these benchmarks. And that's okay, maybe, Lauren, in the accumulation years, because you have a lot of time to sort of beat the benchmarks. In your accumulation years, you have all kinds of time. In fact, the most powerful, the most powerful weapon you have on your side is time. If you just contribute money early on in, in your accumulation years and then you never contribute again, you can allow that that contribution or those contributions to grow to a very big sum. And the only thing you have working on your side at that time is time and compounding interest. But, but to really magnify and really develop the type of portfolio that you need in retirement, you continue, you start as early, early as you can, and then you continue to contribute as you go. And then as you're trying to measure that, you can measure the S, use the S&P 500 or the Dow as a benchmark because you have a lot less writing on it. If you, when you're, when you're 30 years old, if your portfolio is down by 40%, then it's your portfolio that is down by 40%. If you're 60 years old and you only have two years left before you're going to retire and your portfolio is down by 40%, then it's your retirement lifestyle that is down by 40%, not your portfolio. So the, the purpose behind your portfolio has always been the same, which is to provide this lifestyle for you once you're no longer working. But now, once you're so much closer to retirement or in retirement, that purpose has, be has, has become alive. Right. And you are living that purpose. And if if what is fueling that purpose drops by 40, 50 percent, then it's going to have a severe impact to your ability to fulfill that purpose that you've worked so hard and sacrificed uh, for all of these years. And that is one of the reasons why using more appropriate benchmarks at that phase of your life is so, so important. The reason that you could they're, the reason they're more applicable early on in your accumulation years is because you do have that time to make up for any mistakes. And you're not looking to pinpoint, I need, I need a 6% rate, rate return every single year, and I can't lose my shorts when this market takes, takes, takes a dive. You're not as focused about, on that because it's not as, as important because you do have time on your side. So when does, it, when does it flip? So when you're 30 and you lose 40% of your portfolio... It, it's the portfolio that's losing. It's not you. So when does it flip for someone that's maybe 40? Is it a gradual thing? There, there's uh, w Once we get within that 10 years to the retirement date, that's what we call the red zone. So going back to the football analogy, you get within the 10-yard or the 20-yard line, that's the red zone because now every move that you make is that much more important. Uh, you cannot get a first down by one inch. It doesn't matter. If you don't get that first down, you can miss it by three yards or one inch. The result's the same. As you get closer to that, uh, when you get in the red zone in retirement, now every decision is magnified that much more because you have less time to make up for any of the mistakes. And that's why a lot of times when we, when we teach at our workshops, we'll say in retirement, you get one chance to get it right. Because there are singular decisions that people can make that can derail the rest of the retirement. Most of these decisions are permanent decisions. 
if they get Social Security wrong, that could be tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars they left on the table and they can't do anything about it once that decision's made. Okay, so I understand why you can play beat the benchmarks in the accumulation years, but now I'm in that red zone. I'm five years out. I'm 10 years out from retirement. Maybe I'm even in retirement. Let's talk about why you shouldn't compare your retirement performance to these benchmarks. And first, Lauren, these benchmarks are not diversified. Let's start with that one. The benchmarks are not diversified. Like, like pop the V there for some reason. Well, I thought that's what you did. I was trying to mimic what you did. Good. They're not diversified. And that's why as you approach the retirement time frame, certainly once you get into retirement, you do not want to measure the success of your portfolio versus a generic benchmark. And that's what these are. They're extremely generic benchmarks. And when I say generic, I mean, is they have no real applicability to your life. Your life is not custom. Your life is not generic. Your life is custom. So you do not want to measure your custom life with a generic benchmark. This is where you need to do you need to have a custom plan, you need to have a custom portfolio, you need to have custom benchmarks to measure the success of how are you doing to accomplish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Every everybody's retirement goals are a little bit different. Maybe you want to hang out with the grandkids, maybe you have to travel across the country to hang out with the grandkids. Maybe you want a second home. Maybe you want a motor home. There's a lot of different nuance to your life, just uh, to your retirement, just like there always has been throughout the course of your life. That's why it requires a custom plan. And then that plan and your custom life require custom ben benchmarks. Yeah. And these benchmarks are all equities, are all stocks, right? And as you're going if you're getting closer to retirement, it wouldn't make sense for you to be 100% or for most people to be 100% in stocks. So you can't look at a benchmark that's all stocks and think your, your portfolio should perform the same way. Let's go back to the Dow Jones. The Dow Jones represents 30 of the largest companies in the United States. So it, it is a hundred percent equity portfolio. If you're comparing your 60% equity, 40% fixed income portfolio to a hundred percent equity portfolio, and the top 10 stocks in the Dow Jones is weighted more heavily than the bottom 20. So the Dow Jones is an extremely concentrated benchmark in your portfolio should not resemble anything like the Dow Jones. So if you're looking at the stock market uh, on a daily basis and saying, my portfolio was up by 1%, but the Dow Jones was up by 2%, well, and you're dissatisfied by that, then you need to take a look at what your portfolio, how your portfolio is constructed, and then what the goals of your portfolio is. Because I'm looking at that, and I'm saying that's not a bad thing at all. If you're looking at your portfolio, and the, your portfolio is up by one, the Dow Jones is up by one, and your portfolio is consistently reacting like the Dow Jones, then what that tells me is your portfolio is not diversified. In fact, your portfolio is heavily concentrated. And when we go through the next recession or when we go through the next bear market, you're not going to be happy with the results of your portfolio. And these bear markets happen all the time. On average, bear markets happen every four and a half years. So over the course of your 20, maybe 25, 30 year retirement, you are going to see many bear markets and your portfolio is going to see many bear markets. So now it's a matter of what does your portfolio do? How does your portfolio react? And you do not want your portfolio jumping up and down like the Dow Jones. You don't want it jumping up and down like the S&P 500. Like we, like we mentioned, the S&P 500 is 505 stocks. 
If it's reacting like the S&P 500, then your portfolio is not diversified. One of the, one of the best ways to create a recession-resistant portfolio is to make sure you're truly diversified, which means you need some stocks, you need some bonds, uh, maybe some ETFs, maybe some commodities should be a part of that, maybe some, some alternatives. The, the way to create a truly diversified portfolio is to make sure you have a little bit of everything in there so your portfolio is intentionally not reacting like the Dow or the S&P 500, which are all equity portfolios. And there's something to be learned from the Yale endowment. I've heard you talk about it before. As you talk about this large endowment and how it's invested uh, the common investor could even learn a little bit as well. I really like the story that Davis Wenson tells, and, and he tells a story on the website. So if you're interested in this story at all, a visit to uh, the Yale website uh, where David Swenson basically provides his commentary on not only their theory or philosophy on portfolio construction today, but what I find really intriguing is what their philosophy was in the, in the 1990s, and then how it has evolved over time. And what, what he explains on the website is he says, in, in the 1990s, their portfolio, the Yale Foundation portfolio, was 90% domestic stocks and 10% alternatives. And then you fast forward to today's time, and it's, it's the exact opposite. So about 90% alternatives and about 10% domestic uh, allocation. And the reason for that is because way back when in the 90s, a 60% equity portfolio and a 40% fixed income, that was was less correlated, meaning that stocks would do one thing, bonds would do another thing, which is what you're trying to do in a diversified portfolio, was less correlated than what it is today. Where today, and we saw this in 2008, if you had a 60% equity, 40% fixed income portfolio, then you probably still lost in excess of 20% over that 2008 timeframe. And that's not what retirees, that's not what pre-retirees, that's not the experience that they're looking for going in and through retirement. And this is why there's a, a higher necessity to have other components of your portfolio that are not going to react like stocks do, that are not going to react like bonds do. And if you think about these, these major foundations, by the way, the Yale Foundation with David Swenson at the helm, they're not alone. Most of these other foundations, they're going to have 40% at a minimum of alternatives and they go in, in excess to 60%. So most of these big institutions are, are, are have, have changed their philosophy to incorporate more alternative investments in it. But if you think about what they're trying to accomplish as a foundation, it's very similar to what most retirees are trying to accomplish. They have specific foundations have very specific income goals, objectives they're trying to accomplish. Uh, they can't afford to lose 40% either because they have these objectives. Uh, they have investment committees that are making sure they're not taking on so much risk. And they're looking for future growth. They want to beat inflation and they want to accomplish their goals down the road too. So if you compare that versus what most retirees are trying to do is they're trying to grow their portfolio to beat inflation, beat taxation, and then make sure that they can accomplish their uh, income goals later on in life and then any legacy goals that they have as well. It's just most retirees and advisors portfolio structures haven't evolved like the institutional foundational management. Here's the good news. There's a better way to measure your retirement performance and we're going to talk about it right now. Lauren, you like to think of it as measuring your performance in terms of risk 
and return. And one of the most important components of that equation, the risk return equation is the risk component. And that's where we start. So we don't start necessarily with what kind of return are you shooting for? We start with what kind of return do you need to have within your plan to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish? And how much risk do you need to take to achieve that return? So from a risk standpoint, how much risk do you need to take to achieve the return that you need to be successful in retirement? And then how much risk do you feel comfortable with? And first, you understanding how much risk do you need to take can have an influence on how much risk you're comfortable in taking. What you don't want to do is take on way too much risk in retirement. And really, at that point, you're just risking losing the game. If you've already won the game, you've done the hard work, you saved the money, you have the resources necessary to do what you're trying to do, then by taking excess risk, you're just taking, you're just risking losing that game of retirement. So find out how much risk you need to take to continue to accomplish the goals that you've set out to accomplish in retirement and then identify how much risk you feel comfortable with. Those need to mesh. And then that's where that's where we start in creating the portfolio necessary to do what you're trying to do. When you talk about risk, are you always talking about the stock market or are there some other risks? And I know we're going to talk about taxes in a minute, so that's that's another risk altogether. But in this sort of investment category, is that all stock market or are there some other things? The stock market is a part of most people's portfolio in some way or another, but there are some retirees that we have that they don't want anything to do with the stock market, and that's okay too because, and it goes back to those two criteria. If they don't need stocks in their portfolio and they don't want stocks in their portfolio, then let's not have stocks in the portfolio. There are so many different types of investments that people can use from stocks to bonds to ETFs to uh, alternatives or commodities. There's so many different types of investments. There is not one way that will accomplish everything. There's multiple ways that you can use to develop multiple strategies you can use to develop a portfolio to accomplish the same thing. So now it's a matter of finding out which are the strategies that you feel comfortable with, which strategies are going to accomplish really what you're trying to do. Do those non-stock market investments carry some level of risk though as well? They're, everything, getting getting up in the morning today <laughs> carried some risk. It's getting riskier for me as the years go on, I'll tell you what. <laughs> everything involves some type of risk. There are many different types of risk. There's inflation risk, there's opportunity risk, there's tax risk, there's market risk, which is what the, the, the market risk is what most people are familiar with. And that's what most people are fearful of. But there's so many other different types of risk. So yes, regardless of what type of portfolio can you, you construct, there's going to be some different components of risk. It's just a matter of which ones are you comfortable taking and which ones do you want to eliminate from your overall portfolio construction? What about cash under the mattress risk? There, that, that represents inflation risk, and it represents opportunity risk. Um, you may have $3 million, and you spend $12,000 a year from that portfolio. Uh, that's going to be okay long term. But if most people who have $3 million are not spending $12,000 a year from that portfolio, so you still need that portfolio to grow, to beat inflation because we know 15 years from now we're going to wake up and it's going to cost us significantly more for the same lifestyle. So that's the inflation risk that is present. And then of, of that growth, you're going to have to pay taxes. So now it's a matter of minimizing the amount of tax that you pay from that growth or from the distributions from your pre-tax IRAs and 401k plans. Then you have the opportunity risk. If By putting it under your mattress, you know you're not going to make anything. So what if you took it to a government bond 
and you made something. It's you're not going to be killing it, but you make something with very little uh, risk exposure, default risk. Uh, what if you take it to a CD or or multiple banking institutions where you have FDIC insurance around all of that? I mean, so there's a lot of different types of risk. Which ones are you comfortable taking and which ones do you need to take to help you accomplish your goals? And as we talk about measuring your retirement portfolio or your retirement performance as far as risk and return goes, there's not some magic number that people necessarily need to get to, but you've got to think about, too, what are you paying less of? to get to your retirement goals. So if you're paying less in taxes, in my mind, that increases my return each year. Yeah. I mean, there's, when it comes to a magic number, there is not a magic number that people need, but there is your magic number. And that's all based on your lifestyle, what you're trying to accomplish and the different types of resources that you have. And when we think about measuring success, when we think about benchmarking, um, there's a lot that should go into your return number. You have the absolute return of what are you getting from the investments that you are chose to invest in, but there's also a return from how much are you saving on taxation. Most most of the retirement money is pre-tax money, which means when you take it out, <clears throat> either while you're alive or when you pass and it goes on to your loved ones and they take it out, there are going to be taxes that are due on those distributions. So by incorporating tax planning strategies, you can minimize the level of of tax that's due on those distributions. To me, that goes into that return number. The return is all about how much of your money and your earnings do you get to keep. And part of that comes from the investments you choose. Part of that comes from decreasing the taxes that you pay. And part of that comes from increasing the amount that you can pass on even, even when you're gone. So there's a lot of different, a lot of different things that go into what kind of return are you receiving besides just the return from the investment portfolio. So instead of turning on the TV and looking at, you know, the Dow Jones and seeing it plummet and getting nervous, I think the best way to really measure your retirement performance is, am I doing what I want to do? Do I get to retire on the date I want to? I mean, that's that's when it's really fun to be a pre-retiree or a retiree. It sure is. And that's one of the most satisfying parts of what it is we do is we get the pleasure, we get the privilege of going through retirement with our families and seeing this evolution. And a lot of times what we see in, in you know, I just had a, a visit with uh, one of our clients last week. And this is what he was taking me through in this conversation is he came to us and he was, his health was suffering. He was so stressed out from work. The anxiety levels have never been higher. And this was his first summer being retired and he retired young. He retired somewhere around 60. And he was telling me in this visit of he's never been in a better place. He's diabetic, but his numbers are in line. So it's almost as if he's not diabetic. He's never felt uh, less anxiety. Uh, his son was in town uh, and visited him uh, on one of his camping trips and they just had a great time hanging out and his son noticed the difference. Uh, that's, that's the joy of retirement. That's a joy of what we get to do is to see people live that. And at the end of the day, um, people are, people do not look back. If people do not look back and say, I wish I had an extra $200,000. If they have a million dollars, they're not sitting there thinking, Oh, I wish I would have done this, wish I would have done this. So now I can pass away with 1.2. What they're doing is they're reflecting on the experiences that they had and they're reflecting on the type of lifestyle and retirement that they, they had. And they're reflecting on, well, how, how could they impact their world? 
right? Their kids or their grandkids. And, and that's what they really find joy and meaning in. And what this planning does is it helps give them confidence on these decisions that they have to make. Helps them give them confidence that they're making the right decision. They're maximizing everything they can maximize. But when we talk about maximization, yeah, we're talking about these financial strategies and the tax saving strategies. What they're really talking about or thinking about is how do they maximize their impact on their world, their kids, their grandkids, their um, everybody around them in their circles. How can they better their lives or be a more meaningful impact? And, and it's, it's a great joy to watch them go through that. So maybe you're listening, you're going, can I, should I retire at 60? How much risk am I taking in my portfolio? I'd really like to talk to somebody about this. Here's a great opportunity. Go to the website, MerkelPlan.com. It's M-E-R-K-L-E plan.com. And right there, you can get on the calendar of the retirement planners here at Merkel Retirement Planning and schedule a 15 minute retirement checkup call. We invite you to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It's retiring today. Thanks for listening. Merkle Retirement Planning is an independent financial services firm helping individuals create retirement strategies using a variety of investments and insurance products to custom suit their goals and objectives. Any information discussed in these shows is for educational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment advisory services are offered through Elite Retirement Planning, LLC. Insurance services are offered through MRP Insurance, LLC. Insurance services are offered through MRP Insurance, LLC.